travel with Running Warehouse co-founder Joe Rubio and YouTube running shoe sensation Connor Blaylock into a new dimension of running. Come along as we chat running gear, training, coaches, and much more. A podcast journey into the wonderful world of all things running related. Your next epic running adventure awaits at Mr. Rubio Used to Run. Right. Welcome back to the channel, Board Runners. Uh, here we are, episode number nine of Mr. Rubio Used to Run, the Running Warehouse, Warehouse Podcast. Easy there, uh, Joe. Easy. Uh, your hosts, Joe and Connor, uh, reporting for duty. So anyways, um, speaking of battle-tested, you've been injured recently, correct? Yes. Okay. Ex- I mean, explain to us what happened. I mean, every runner has an injury yeah. over their career. I've had my fair share, but this last injury has been a battle. I mean, we're we're coming on, I think, about six months now. Right. The longest I think I've ever been out with an injury, and I've gotten MRIs, uh, I've gotten uh, X-rays, and I think we've basically determined I did fracture my fifth met. Uh-huh. Um, and it's healed now, but it's just been lingering. And this is something that happens with runners. And I'm trying to do all the little things. I've gotten the shockwave therapy. I've been trying to stay off it. I've been trying to stay on it, doing other exercises. But it's just, it's rough. <laughs> and I'm trying to get back. We might have to change the podcast to Mr. Rubio and Connor used to, run. used to run. So actually, how did it happen? Because it wasn't a running necessarily injury. Yeah, I mean, I did. I was running when it happened, but I was recording right. with, a, with a GoPro. Uh-huh. Maybe not as uh, in touch with my surroundings. We were at Western States, and I just twisted my ankle. And I didn't think it was a big deal. I mean, every runner's probably twisted their ankle at some point. Right. So I kept running. Yeah. I didn't think uh, anything of it. Ran another five or six miles, got back. I'm like, my foot's a little sore. And I ran on a fractured foot. I would not recommend that, but it happened. Now, what's really odd is <laughs> on a previous uh, podcast, we had Sean Davidson. Yes. Who heads our digital marketing department. We talked about uh, Cooper's. Yes. Barbecue. Yes. In Austin, Texas. Yes. And Sean is a 13 high 5K runner, a very, very good runner. Right. It, he was running in the dark the other night. And what did he do? He broke his ankle. Yeah. So you guys both broke your foot twisting it, which is, it's not a stress-related thing. I guess it is a stress-related thing, but it's not, you know, the kind of thing where you're running, not drinking any milk and running 130 miles a week, right? Exactly. Sort of thing. Exactly. um, But man, that sucks. It does. And it just takes time. Yeah. It's annoying, but we will get back and uh, testing shoes again. Yes, exactly. (laughs) What you're paid to do. (laughs) Okay. The first world issue we're addressing today, and uh, you guys can comment below if you like this idea. Should we do shoe reviews on this podcast? Your thoughts? I mean, I think there is a place for it. I mean, yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear from the fans, but we do first looks on our YouTube channel. We do our own reviews, mm-hmm. but I think this might be a place for me and you to be a little more unfiltered. We can say whatever is on our mind, give our first impressions on new shoes, talk about shoes that we've been running in a bit, and I think it could, it could be fun. Yeah, the thing that I'd like to see if we do it, is something a little bit more objective in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if anybody watches Doug DeMuro, but he has this car show and he gives cars a score. So I was thinking of something similar, and you guys can tell me if you think this is a stupid idea or a good idea. But number one criteria that we would be looking at, and we'd come up with some sort of scoring system, you know, one to four, one to five, and it'd be based on, on what we felt about the shoe. But number one would be the actual performance of the shoe. 
So running in the shoe, the cushion, compression, compliance, uh, resilience, rebound, geometries, foam properties, um, you know, weight, uh, whether it's bouncy or whether it's cushion, those types of things. Yeah. So that would be the first thing we would look at. Um, also th- things like stability, inherent stability, what kind of stability features? Is it unique? Is it things like guardrails or is it traditional? Something like an Arahi, you know, with a J heel and, and then, um, or a unique, uh, thing like the Kayano is pretty unique in terms of, of their solution for, for, um, stability. But also number two on the whole list is style and looks. Now there's going to be a whole bunch of people listening to this and going, that's BS, right? But they're. I went to a Brooks symposium about a thousand years ago and uh, they were doing studies on brick and mortar who came in and bought shoes. And they estimated that 10% of the people that came into a store uh, bought shoes based on the technology within that shoe. And they actually understood the technology. There was another 10% of the population that bought based on technology, but didn't understand the technology. And the example they used was they asked one gentleman why he bought X pair of shoes and he says, because they're stable. And they say, how do you know it's stable? And he squeezed the heel counter and says, it's got a firm heel counter. Now, that's an aspect of it, but that's not really the most overriding issue on stability. So there's 10% that understand the technology, 10% that don't. 30% of the people buy shoes based on the fact that they uh, get a recommendation from a friend, someone they run with, a uh, doctor, podiatrist, uh, shoe associate, something like that, tells them this is the shoe for you. And the other 50% of the people buy it based entirely on looks. Just does it look good. And I went around the building and I talked to people. And the fashion forward people don't care how it fits, don't care how it performs. It's how it looks on their foot. Right. Really odd. I mean, I don't care how they look. I just want to make sure they, they work. Yeah. But we're only in that 10%. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll give it a, 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 a style, color, materials, overlays, all those types of things. Is it a good looking shoe? Yeah. Right. Well, and the one thing that I always think of with Doug DeMuro is his quirky feature. Yeah, quirky features, the, yeah. Yes, and I think we'll definitely have to bring that in, too, because right. we see a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff on the shoes that maybe don't get out to the general public, but there are unique stories with each shoe. There was a shoe that came in here. It was, uh, it had Braille on it. Right. Right? <laughs> and uh, you can guess the brand because we actually looked it up in the meeting on our computer and it said, just do it, which is one of those quirky little, they call them Easter eggs, I guess. You just, you know, little things you find in the shoe. Uh, kind of cool. But it, it was a tough translation, but we did figure it out. <laughs> yeah, it took, <laughs> it took 12 of us on our computers an hour to figure it out, but we figured it out. Um, the, the third as- aspect would be comfort. So fit materials, insoles. How does the shoe actually fit? Um, because one of the things is, is if the shoe is too tight, uh, the runner perceives the shoe as stiffer than if it fits properly. It's an odd thing about humans, but that seems to be the case. So um, the next would be experience. And experience is, has a lot to do with different shoes it's competing with in that category. So if you're looking at premium comfort, you want a super comfortable upper. You want to be tend to be on the soft side. You want it to be stable. You don't want to be squirrely, that type of thing. And then if it's a racing shoe, if it's a high-end racing shoe, well, you want it to basically jettison you forward is what you want. And, you know, to, to compare those two experiences isn't, isn't going to be the same. So, and then the last one is value. Um, a lot of people will say, and you can back me up on this, that 
price on a shoe doesn't matter. It matters a lot. Yeah, I, I've seen that actually quite a few times on um, on YouTube in comments where people say you shouldn't bring up the price. But I mean, we've seen $200 shoes that were good shoes in concept, but it was just too expensive for the competitive landscape. You put that at 120 and it's a it's a whole nother ballpark. Right. And I would put the Rebel yes. in that. It, the Rebel is a fantastic shoe at 140 yes. Yeah. It'd still be a good shoe at 200 Yeah. But it's phenomenal at 140 Yeah. And we have that in, uh, it, other examples of that as well. Yeah. Um, I think uh, um, the Endorphin Speed is a good example. At yes. 170 that's a very good, very good value. Yeah. And the Boston 12 at 160 mm -hmm. that's a really good value as well. So it kind of depends on, on what you're doing there. But value does play an important mm -hmm. role in this whole thing. Yeah. And going back to cars, I, I have an example of my two cars. So I have a <laughs> 59 Austin Healey Sprite, yeah. Bug Eye Sprite. You can look that up online. It's a very cute car, but uh, very old. And then I have a 2012 Tesla S, which is a very uh, advanced machine. So <laughs> looking at the performance of both cars, we, we start with the, the Bug Eye Sprite performance any new car on the planet is going to out accelerate it, out corner it, out break it, get better mileage, uh, be safer, all those types of things. Um, but uh, it does corner pretty well, but not nearly as good as, as uh, a modern car, especially yeah. I had a GTI and that way, way, way better. And we, we drove around in your yeah, bug eye. Yeah. And while, yeah, you're right, any modern car is going to outperform it. It is a fun car yeah, to drive just, in. And I, I find that with sometimes going back to some old shoes. Yeah, maybe a Lunar Racer isn't going to compare to a Vaporfly, but it's still a really fun shoe to run in. You get those memories of when you used to use it. Yeah, exactly. So it, it depends on what the, the purpose of it is. You know, yeah. you're, not, you're not breaking out the, uh, the Lunar Racer to go run a PR in the 5K, right? Right. It's, you're going to do a workout and you go, this, is, this was pretty fun. Yeah. That sort of thing. Uh, as far as style and looks, both cars, both of my cars are pretty attractive. Mm -hmm. uh, the bug eye is a lot more cute, um, <laughs> but uh, and the S is a nice looking car. Uh, comfort, the S wins hands down. It's a you know, it's a lazy boy on wheels. It's not it's, a death trap. It's not a death trap. I mean, you <laughs> like I went down to San Diego, and of course you're filling up the car with electrons, and it takes forever. So it took me like nine hours to get to San Diego, and then seven hours back. But it was really comfortable the whole way. The bug eye, I drive for 30 minutes, and man, it's painful. It's it's so it's harder than hell to get into and out of. It's uncomfortable. There's no heater. There's no windshield wipers. There's nothing. So uh, the the comfort is is uh, is not there. As far as experience, like you said, the bug eye is super fun. Yeah, it wins hands down over the Tesla. The Tesla is like it's an appliance. It's like a microwave or something like that, right? You turn it on and you know you expect it to go and it heats your food and gets you to where you want to go, but it's not very exciting doing it. The bug guy is an adventure. Yeah, You're like three inches off the ground. You're driving defensively like, like nobody's business because you're about the size of a, a coffee table yeah. driving around, but it is a very fun car. And then there's the value aspect of the whole thing. Now, um, both cars are valued about the same same amount of money between maybe twenty five and thirty thousand dollars, but the value of the Tesla is way superior to the value of the Bug Eye because in my mind the Bug Eye is not worth that much money, but just because it's a somewhat rare antique car, right? Right. So the, the you really got to really value, yeah. You really got to want to have that car, yeah, to spend that kind of money on that vehicle for yeah. something that that's uncomfortable and doesn't drive real fast and all those kinds of things. Or uh, you know the the Tesla. Uh, especially when you're looking at value in terms of how much it costs to charge because mm -hmm. it's free lifetime charging and there's no expenses with the car that it's hires. 
Yeah. So it's basically driving around for free once you, you, you pay for it. So the value aspect of the whole thing. So we want to do something similar and give a, a score for running shoes. Yeah. And, and again, we need to compare it to other shoes in that set. So if, if you guys are interested in us doing uh, shoe reviews, you know, we have plenty of shoes here to review. Yeah. And we get them in all the time. We got new oh, shoes, yeah. old shoes, co- shoes coming out down the road. Yeah. We can do anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, another thing that happened recently is uh, I go to this thing. I call it a think tank for, for running geeks, right? You know this. Oh, it's trouble. I don't know if it's trouble, <laughs> but it's we do it in Santa Barbara, and it's every three or four months, and it's at the Lacumbre Country Club, which is a it's a hole. I mean, <laughs> look it up. It's really uh, – it's like right next door to Prince Harry's house and all that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but in this think tank, it's generally four of us. It's me. Uh, it's Jean-Luc and Jean-Luc is the founder of Hoka and well, you know, him. I mean, yeah, we, we call him the mad scientist. He, he, I mean, he's got the craziest shoes, the craziest ideas, the craziest hair, you know, the guy is just amazing. He is. And he's got a wicked car. He's got an Aston, oh, Aston Martin formula one uh, road car. Uh, when you're driving through Santa Barbara and you see this crazy-looking, super-fast supercar, that's Matt Green. Yeah. That's him. That's the mad scientist. Yeah. Yeah. So, And then uh, another person that we have join us is uh, Jeff Gray. And Jeff Gray owns Helux. Yes. So he's uh, arguably the number one tester of footwear uh, yeah. in America. And, and we've been going to his lab for years. Yeah. Crazy lab. Every time, I feel like every few years he expands the lab, mm-hmm. but... I mean, he's got cool stuff in terms of sensors, his own unique designs that he's built, the right. time machine. Right. I mean, this is literally a treadmill with like three legs that it, it, it circles rotates. around. It does and, durability And it durability does durability testing. testing. Right. And that's all proprietary to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. He, sell, he actually sells them to brands. Yeah. So they can check the durability on the shoes. He also tests um, things like for the uh, work, what do you call it, uh, work shoes for yep. for restaurants and stuff i mean uh, he's slippery you know this yes. slip factor because you can't have shoes that slip on wet no. surfaces or else you get sued right right and or, i mean the one com- thing that i think of in his lab i mean he's got all the cool testing but he's got an antique um shoe x-ray device so back i believe it was the 50s it might have even been before that they you would walk into a, a store and you could put your feet into this x-ray device and actually look in and see how your shoe fit or see how your foot fit in the shoe. Uh-huh. A really cool concept. And I, you think, yeah, like uh, really interesting to see how a shoe fits. But what they weren't thinking about and really what they didn't know at that time was x-rays for recreational purposes. <laughs> this is probably not the ideal thing. Not a great yeah. idea. So yeah. Jeff has one of those. It's decommissioned, but a really cool throwback to the early days of running shoe and shoe shopping. <laughs> uh, and the uh, fourth gentleman that joins us is a man by the name of Stuart Jenkins. And Stuart led uh, when Deckers initially bought Hoka. Uh, he was in charge of innovation for Deckers and Hoka. So um, it's just interesting. We, we talk about all kinds of different things that are going on in the footwear industry. Some of the stuff is has to do with running shoes. Some of it has to do with stupid stuff, yep. you know, things like that, like finding out that Jean-Luc was the first guy to, um, what, hang glide off the top of Mont Blanc, and he crashed and stuff like that. He used to be an ambulance driver when he was 16 in the, the Swiss Alps or whatever. Yeah, we're going to we're gonna have to dive deeper into that yeah. next time we have uh, Jean-Luc on the right. program. Well, speaking <laughs> of that, um, one of the things that we were talking about was shoe briefs. 
Yes. And for those that don't know what a shoe brief is, is when you initially come up with a concept of a shoe, in their case, a running shoe, you can be very specific or not very specific. And he is very specific. So in his shoe briefs, it's who's the end consumer, what are the specs, specifically the weight of the shoe, the price you intend to charge the customer, who that customer is, compression set, resilience, stacks, all these types of things. And most importantly is are, are the weight and the, um, the price of the shoe. Yeah. And that's where a lot of the briefs from different brands get it wrong because if you don't put a weight in there, then you can put any material you want in there and end up with a 10-ounce racing flat. Yeah. Versus, I mean, he came to this lunch with his new racing flat, which was high stack in a carbon plate with a racing upper, and it was 135 grams, which for those Unreal. in rear land is 4.6 ounces. Crazy. He just pulled it out of his backpack. <laughs> then he gave me a, a pair of boots, which... Uh, uh, for Christmas and they're uh, like compete with, with UGG, which is in the same building, yeah. but they're half the, half the weight. Yeah. I get a view of them out. So really cool, really cool stuff. So it's always bringing really interesting things. Yeah. And the, the most disappointing thing is when you see a brand, um, have a shoe brief that isn't targeting the right shoe competition yes. or isn't targeting, um, the top in class shoe, you know, like when we're comparing super shoes, you can't compare your super shoe to one of the heaviest super shoes on the market. You should be comparing to the Vaporfly. Yeah. And a lot of these brands, it, it almost just seems like, I don't know if they're purposefully doing it. Um, Maybe but, they don't know. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it's just disappointing sometimes. And it's like, do you want to be the best? Do you do you want to have the best product on the market? And, right. and you know, the other thing we talked about is development cycles. So yeah. in John Luke's case, it's just him going directly to... Yeah to the manufacturer yes. and, and by and where you run into problems in terms of coming out with new products at a faster pace is if you have a product development team within the building that you have a, a group of people and anytime you have a group of people, the decisions that get made take longer than if you have yes. one individual. And that's definitely changed over the years with Hoka in the earlier days, we saw products come like that. We're lightning fast. Yeah. Yeah. But now it's, it's a bigger committee and there's other yes. considerations in terms of costs, on yes. co cost of materials, yep. making money for um, investors and stuff like that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, John Luke's coming with stuff, you know, six or eight weeks out and most brands takes about a year yeah. to get things out there. Um, there's also the added thing of uh, most most brick and mortars don't want product coming out faster than every two years yeah. because you have the, the issue of inventory. Mm -hmm. And if you have a new product coming out every year, then you have to put the old stuff on sale, bring the new stuff in, yep. um, and your chance of making more money is, is less. Uh, whereas we want stuff now, right. yesterday. We want to turn, right? We want to turn product. We want, we want excitement and we want it yesterday yeah so we're just a different world but um in stewart what we talked about was uh stewart like i mentioned earlier was in charge of innovation at, at uh, hoka and, and um and uh deckers and so at the time uh this was when 2010 and jim van dyne was the president and angel martinez was uh, uh, president of, of deckers and they're both backgrounds they both owned a, a running shoe store in Richmond back in the 70s. And then they went to uh, Reebok and headed up that department. And that's when Reebok really got into competitive running. This was in the 80s. Mm -hmm. So uh, 
Jim almost made the U.S. team for the World Cross Country Team. On Hill was All-American in Cross Country and Track at Davis. They both went to Davis. Anyway, so they're really in tune with, with competitive runners. And so when they first got Hoka, that was one of the things is they wanted to appeal to performance run because at the time when they got it, the only people that bought Hokas were broken, old broken runners or people that are walking around the shoes. So they mm -hmm. want to change the perception. So anyways, uh, Jim and, and Onhill were at Reebok and they made a big push into competitive running, which included signing athletes like Steve Jones, who had the world record of the marathon. You had Arturo Barrios, who was on fire. Yep. You had Ed Eystone, who made the U.S. team in the marathon. You had Dina it draws in at the time, Dina Castor, she was running for him. So they had just an incredible, and then they, you know, they, they were teamed up with uh, Gagliano, and so you had all mm -hmm. those, uh, Steve Holmans and, and uh, Amy Rudolph and all those kind of people yep. running for Reebok. So that was a big deal. So yeah, then, I mean, if, if you look in the 80s, yeah, Reebok, Reebok was, singlets were, were just everywhere. everywhere. Yeah, they had a really good stable of athletes. Yeah. And then when Jim and, and uh, Anhel went to Hoka, uh, they made a big push towards uh, competitive running. So yes. racing flats and spikes, and they signed Leo Manzano in 2014, yes. yeah. th those types of things. But um, going back to Stuart, what mm -hmm. he did was, okay, yes, we have all these shoes that we're developing for, for uh, I guess, for one of better word, real runners. Mm -hmm. But what about the people who don't really run that much? They don't consider themselves runners. They just, you know, they run occasionally or they walk in the shoes and stuff like that. So Stuart spent four or six months at Santa Barbara Running Company four hours every Saturday without pay working with customers to figure out what people were coming in and looking for. And he said during that time, he helped one runner that could break seven minutes in the mile. And he said very rarely did he see a, a runner. He saw a lot of people walking in the shoes. Right. And so his team developed the Clifton. Right. Yes, you could run the Clifton, but primarily it was a soft shoe that looked good, that had a lot of cushioning, that was comfortable, and it was reasonably priced. And that's what he came up with. And, and it, what ended up happening was uh, Jim hated the shoe. I think he might have even throw, thrown it at Stuart. I don't know. But, um, but how management has changed because that shoe is like a cornerstone of Hoka's success. Yeah. Right. And that's a large part of people that are buying running shoes is people that aren't necessarily running in the shoes. Yeah. They're walking in the shoes. So yeah. there's a whole aspect of the running specialty. Yeah market running industry that's gearing to geared towards people who have no intention of running in the shoes. And I think what was maybe special about the Clifton, because I remember when that first came out was, yes, it was comfortable, but I think it very quickly got adopted by some runners because of how light and cushion it was. So it, it had not only the comfort, but the performance element. So it actually had a lot of uses for a pretty wide variety of runners. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was widely accepted. Yeah. Which I think was the idea. Yeah. You know, you could wear it out to dinner and stuff like yeah. that. And it was it was a start of Hoka's actually looking good because yeah. the early days they were not And good I, looking. I was just skeptical to try a Hoka. So I remember the Clifton one was actually the first Hoka that I wore and test ran because I was just hesitant about getting in a pair. Yeah. Um, but man, look how far we've come. <laughs> Uh, some of the other stuff that we talked about was uh, unique uses for carbon. Oh, yeah. So back, we mentioned this in our earlier podcast, but Golight had carbon in the in the heel, heel counter to, yep. uh, to aid in, in stability. Uh, the first carbon shoe that I remember was a Brooks in the 80s, mm -hmm. and the carbon was located right on ground level. So it wasn't near the it wasn't in the midsoles, right on the ground right. to aid in stability. Yep. Um, Zoot had those carbon shoes. That we broke a few of yeah, them. Yeah, we broke a few of yeah. them. Uh, that idea also was, was stability. And uh, Stuart and Jeff 
uh, invented it. And another use of carbon, which also involves stability, but basically it's rails on the shank of the shoe. So it doesn't, it doesn't extend into the heel. It doesn't extend into the forefoot. It just exists on either side, the medial and lateral side of the, the shank. Yep. With the idea being it provides uh, stability. Yep. So you have the softness of the cushioning when you land, and then you go through the uh, mid stance, and you have stability through the carbon, and then you toe off and you have the cushioning there when you put a rocker in there. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see if that if it actually works, yeah. but it'll be coming in a new model that uh, people will see March or April. Okay. Yeah. Well, and I mean, we've seen the traditional carbon plate. Mm-hmm. Adidas came out with their energy rods, but it is interesting to see how different brands take their approach in the plate with a lot of trail options going into split plate designs. Uh-huh. One of my favorite plate designs of all time was... Uh, Partly from our, our buddy Kurt from Skechers in the Speed Elite had uh, the plate that was a H. on a level plane, yeah. and it was kind of like p- two parallel plates. And I remember when I first saw it, I thought, is this legal? Because at the time, it said you could only have one plate in a shoe. But since it was on a level plane, it was able to get two separate features and reduce weight. And I think that's something we're going to keep seeing. I've seen a couple concepts recently with plates with really unique shapes. Hoka has been doing some stuff with uh, extending the plate up into uh, into the midsole, into the sidewall. Right, and, and also the sparrow tail yes, on the a lot spar- of the Jean, Jean-Luc thing. Yep. So the, the uh, what you call the, the split uh, carbon goes into either one of those wings. Yeah. And so it's like an independent suspension. Right. So you, you have that going on, but it's uh, pretty interesting stuff. I yes. mean, it's... It's, I mean, plates can be used for propulsion, yeah. stability, protection. There are so many uses for plates. It's cool stuff. <laughs> uh, one of the other thing is, is after I had lunch with those guys, I met with uh, Lee Cox, who is the, um, he used to be head of marketing and sales yep. for Hoka. And now he does, uh, I think he wanted to see new business development for uh, Deckers. And he was talking to me about a, a brand that they're, uh, this is way down the road, but something that's that's uh, targeted towards performance as leisure. Mm-hmm. So you take aspects of performance running shoes yeah. and more of a leisure uh, fashion forward yeah. upper, yeah. and you could theoretically run in it, but it's trying to take the best attributes of performance run shoes and put it into a, a an everyday shoe. Yeah, and we talked about this a little bit last week with some of the Decker's Lab concepts that yeah. we've been testing for years. Yeah, forever. Um, and it's cool. I mean, it, it's definitely a little more subtle. Um, but you can get those performance features without having that, you know, hey, everyone, look at me. It's a very sleek look. And I mean, I'm, I've been really interested in some of the Decker's lab concepts that we've been testing. Yeah. Um, you know, throughout my, my journeys, uh, I'll have a tendency to stop in at, at brick and mortar running stores mm-hmm. just to check things out to see what's going on in the marketplace. Yeah. And one of the things that, that I've noticed is in most cases for your local brick and mortar store. I don't know. This is this is around the United States, but this was in Florida. This is in Texas. This is in Georgia and California. Is uh, shoes are tend to be well. It, it's mostly um, performance, or not so much performance. It's it's, it's leisure. Yeah. Um, and so it's going to be shoes are organized by brand. There's nothing fast in the stores. Yeah. Uh, there's no racing flats per se. Cross country really doesn't exist. There's not a lot of spikes, but there is a lot of shoes at 160 and above. Really? For yeah, so it's 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 really a comfort solution. Yeah. And um, in most cases, the, the shoes, you know, it, there's a lot of color. Um, 
and uh, there is a lot of color. There is these. a lot of color. Yeah, okay. they'll show color. You know, particularly like uh, most of the most of the brick and mortars will have an on display, uh, and now have every color of on that they have on that one area. Okay. Uh, so there's a lot of that. Um, generally, uh, prices aren't listed. The name of the shoe isn't listed. So you're relying a lot on the the salesperson. Yeah. You know, and the experience, and um, so it's just it's just interesting because. Um, actually performance run doesn't exist to any great extent in brick and mortar. So yeah. you're not going to, it's hard to find running shorts. Yeah. It's hard to find racing stuff. It's hard to find any of this stuff. Right. Yeah. But if you have a brick and mortar, most people are coming in are going to be from what I saw over 70 years old and they're not running in the shoes. Yeah. They're going to be walking around the shoes. And I think with that being said, there definitely are, because we've been to some of the, some of the better, um, more run focused brick and mortars mm-hmm. yeah. that are fantastic. Right. So not to say they aren't out there. We even have our own retail store here in San Luis Obispo that not a lot of people know about. And we try to give a good variety of comfort solutions, but also having the track spikes, the vapor flies, and trail, trail, trail. Does, trail doesn't exist to any great extent in, yeah. in the retail stores that I went to. But even here with yeah. a very run specific community, and I think we have a pretty good amount of product on the floor we still do get a large amount of comfort yeah. solution yeah. runners, walkers yeah. that come sure. into the store. And that, I mean, that's when you talk to people in retail. Yeah. Unless it's cross country or track season, yeah. it's 80% are people that tend to be retired yeah. and are walking in the shoes, yeah. which is fine. It's just a, it's just a different different customer. So yeah. it's, pretty, it's been pretty eye-opening to me yeah. to check that out. But um, next up... Joe answers the internet. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay. Um, from the world-famous Let's Run message board comes the following from Rojo. And for those that don't know Rojo, that's Robert Johnson, who's the co-founder. Um, it's, it's, so I'll just read it word for word. Uh, let's Run. I drew my Aunt Betty in the Secret Santa this year. Uh, well, it's not a secret, as she knows I have her. Uh, she says she wants a pair of walking shoes. She walks with a cane. I immediately thought of getting her a pair of super shoes to help propel her forward, but I'm not sure if that's a good idea as I haven't worn them enough. Is there enough horizontal stability or might an elderly person fall in a pair of super shoes? What do you think? If super shoe is the best idea, which one best for senior citizen who needs help walking? Or is it the opposite of what she needs? Yo, so you, you this you can't take, be a, This can't be a real question. It is a real question. Yeah. I, I mean, I did, it's just crazy that people are even thinking. And I, I guess part of this comes to there is so much talk of super shoes mm-hmm. right now. And I've actually found myself uh, hearing from a lot of friends who maybe aren't runners, but they might have read an article in the New York Times about these new marathon shoes that they are getting pushed a lot. And people think maybe since these are the most expensive and the most tech-driven shoes that they need them. But look, these shoes are for people looking to run fast to run fast <laughs> not to stand around they're really um they designed to propel you forward and uh robert i mean you, you don't want an elderly, elderly person in an unstable pair of shoes you want to have a, a more stable platform particularly as people age and so a better choice would probably be a bondi yeah. which has a rocker it's inherently very stable a similar stack height to maybe some of these super shoes. Right, but way more stable. Yes. It's going to be a way better experience for uh, for your aunt. So don't do super shoes for walking. Anybody out here. I, I saw a guy at Costco the other day, and he definitely did not look like he ran much. Um, but he was wearing uh, on Echo Booms. 
Interesting. Yes. Wow. $260, $70 racing shoes? Yeah. Yeah. And he looked like he didn't run a step. Oh, yeah. But he but could he afford. he was efficient running through the, walking through those <laughs> halls. I don't know, man. It was just, it was crazy. Yeah. Um, we have this from Shoe Dude 101. Uh, in no particular order, three top three worst running shoe brands are Hoka, On, and Saucony. And the thing is, is that all shoe companies have good shoes. All shoe companies have less than good shoes. And these three companies have some very, very good shoes. I mean, the Saucony Endorphin line is fantastic. Um, their new stuff, their new ride, their new guide, the Triumph is all very good. Um, On has some new models that are actually quite runnable. Right. And, and with Hoka, you know, the, the uh, Tecton's very good. The Mach X is very good. The Rocket X2 is very good. So, and they have other shoes that maybe aren't good for me, but doesn't mean they're bad shoes. And I feel like this is something we hear a lot about. I, I feel like one of the biggest ones, a lot of people will say Nike. Yeah. Or in terms of like they're thinking of past, you know, maybe going back 10 or 20 years when, the shoes didn't work for them or it didn't fit right and or or maybe not even a running shoe they're they're talking about nike as a whole brand and you can, you have to look at run specific shoes and really year after year these brands are growing if we look back at on a few years ago i might be on a similar page but now they do have a lot of really great models so you know you're like right the, you, you the have eclipse to look is at, good yeah. the monster's good you have to look at the big picture right um, but I don't think there's really any brand right now that I can think of that isn't doing really g- good stuff in the space. Right. It, particularly if you're looking at the top seven, eight brands. Yeah. You know, the Brooks is Asics. Yeah. You know, Nike. I go to running camps and every year uh, high school kids will ask me, does Nike make good running shoes? And yep. I said, what are you racing? They go, Nike. And I yep. said, why do you think they were, Nike makes bad running shoes? They said, because our coach says Nike makes bad running shoes. And I said, have them try the Invincible, Right. They're stuck in the past. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even the, I mean, the Pegasus is decent. Yeah. You know, Vomero's decent. Um, they're not bad. Yeah. And I think when you start limiting yourself to your past experiences, I mean, look at Mizuno. If you go back a few years ago, it was very stale. Yeah. There was very little that I could say I would recommend. Mm-hmm. You look at the last year, and then you look into the next year. Next year, it looks great. Oh, my gosh. I mean, Mizuno is going to be the, sh- the shoe company to look at. Not only their super shoes, but, but their- Training pro- shoes. Oh, my gosh. These new trainers with the foams, with the geometries. There was one shoe that we just saw in Austin a few months ago that I think is going to completely change the performance training space. We can't talk too much about it, but from a price point, technology, and feel- I mean, it's going to give the Nova Blast a run for its money. Yeah. The thing is with Mizuno, it's just that they were asleep for a while. Mm-hmm. And if you look at other sports, like, you know, I keep going back to golf, but they make fantastic golf yeah. gear. Yeah. Volleyball gear is fantastic. You know, their baseball stuff is off the off the charts. So the, the brand knows how to make performance gear. It's just they weren't focused on running for a while. But now they're back. The next thing up... <laughs> The Riz My Fizz, which is Physiology 101. I guess in this case, it's more of a, a coaching kind of thing. And mm-hmm. I get people asking me at practice and other, other places, how you set workout paces. Now, most people, when they're doing workouts, just run. They run hard. They get tired. They slow down. Uh, there is a, a couple different ways of setting workout paces, which makes the workout appropriate because you want, you want 
work has to be, you have to reach a little bit, but you don't want to overdo it. Right. So it's not like a race. Right. When I, I think that's something that we see a lot of times people, they'll say, you know, maybe it's a 15-30 5K guy. He wants to be in 15 flat shape, but he's not there. But he's basing his workouts off 15 flat because he thinks he can be there. You're right. And I feel like that's a huge red flag. You should not be doing that. No, you should not be doing that. And one of the first things that uh, that I looked at when I was looking at paces is this book here, Running Tracks. So Dr. Purdy from the 60s. That's vintage right there. This one is updated. The original <laughs> one was called Computerized Running Training Programs. Okay. So back he and another gentleman, uh, Dr. Purdy was getting his doctorate in two disciplines at Stanford in the 60s. Mm-hmm. One was computer science and one was exercise physiology. So he combined the two and made a baby and this is the baby right here. But imagine deciding you're to do a doctorate in computer science in the 60s. I mean, who does that? This guy. Anyway, so what he did was he analyzed, he went through reams of data and analyzed all the world records and figured out a formula to determine things like, okay, let's look here. What do I have pegged? Uh, He gave a point system for different race performances. Okay. So in this case, we look at, say, a five-minute mile. A five-minute mile is worth 575 points. Okay, what the heck does that mean? Well, you look farther back in the book. And there's a 600 chart and there's a 550 chart. And generally speaking, you take the, the lower so you don't overbake people. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted person X to do, say, four-mile reps, the five-minute miler, the time listed is 602 with a two- to three-minute recovery. Okay. Okay. Um, you also have things like... like uh, some of my athletes decided to do... A, I got this second hand, so I might have this wrong. But last year, they were doing uh, about eight miles worth of work at five-minute pace for okay. tempo work. And are these about 14, Four, 14 flat? 14 flat, okay. guys. So um, four, uh, eight miles worth of stuff at, at five-minute pace. So I don't know if this is a case or not, but the morning workout was uh, three-mile, two-mile, one-mile, one-mile. Okay. So seven miles worth of stuff. I think they did a version of that. So there's seven miles in the morning at five-minute pace roughly. And then the evening, another six miles of stuff at five minute pace. So you've gone from eight minutes or eight miles of stuff at five minute pace to 13 miles worth of five minute pace. So that's a pretty significant thing. But the reason I bring that up is because if you, I said, I suggested that the paces should be closer to 520. So if you look at 14 flat, which is about 900 points on here, and you look at 12 times mile with a 30 to 60 second recovery, it's 517. Yeah. So the guy knew his stuff. But that's one way to, to determine workout paces is a book like this or Dr. Daniels and stuff like that. And so it, it keeps you from getting yourself in trouble or getting your athletes in trouble, yeah. having people work out at the, the appropriate pace. But what I do is I have a, a, a thing I got from uh, Frank Horwell. And Frank uh, invented a thing called multi-pace training. Mm. So this was back, I started communicating with uh, Frank I want to say in the late 80s, mm-hmm. early 90s, before there was such a thing as, as the internet. So I would write to him. He was in England, and he'd write the answers to my questions back. So it took a long time. But basically what multi-pace training says is that if you are a 5K runner and focusing on the 5K, you, uh, do, two, you do a workout at 5K. You do one workout, the next workout at 10K, 
which is one speed above it. Mm -hmm. And then the next workout at 3K, which is one speed below it. Mm -hmm. And then one workout at half marathon pace, which is two speeds above it. And then one workout at 1500 pace, which is two speeds below it. So when you, when you look at all the different paces that uh, a distance runner can run, there's 400 meter race pace, there's 800, there's mile, there's two mile, there's 5K, 10K, half marathon and marathon. Those are the different paces. And so based on each one of those, if you have someone who's a five-minute miler, mm -hmm. it's called a five-second rule. So if you're a five-minute miler, that's 75 seconds for the mile. One speed up is two mile. So that would be 75 plus five would be 80, mm. right? And then you go to 5K, it'd be 85. Yep. 10K would be 90, right? And then you keep going like that all, yeah. the, all the way up. So not marathon. not not a perfect solution, but a pretty good estimate, right? And you can do I can do it off the top of my head. Really? And so um, Frank's was originally the four second rule, but yeah. he was dealing with Seb Co. Ah. So a little different thing. So yes. I found that you know a four second rule across the board didn't work, but a four second rule works for a four minute miler. A five second rule works for a five minute miler. A six second rule works for a six minute miler, and so forth. Yeah. Seven second rule. So yeah. I can do it at the track. So right. if someone comes in and says, "I just ran an eighteen forty five 5k for the weekend mm -hmm. that six minute pace so i know at 5k it's 90 seconds so in the price add six seconds to it so 96 for 10k 102 seconds for half marathon that sort of thing yeah. so it just allows me to come up with workout paces that are appropriate yeah and usually athletes don't even know what those paces mean right but i can look on the track and, and go you're you know you need to slow down or whatever yeah but it, it just it really is helpful uh when someone's really dialed in yeah. like the 14 flat guys know what what pace to run, yeah. you know? So when you tell them 72s, they'll run 72s. Whereas you have some people that are just, you know, they're three 15 marathoners have been running for a year. They have no idea what, what a pace is. They're all over the map. But having a system of coming up with workout paces is really helpful. Um, but there's, th there's three things to do when you're coming up with a workout. One is the pace. One is the volume of work at the pace. And the last one's recovery, the recovery between the intervals. So on a future episode, we'll talk about coming up with the volumes of work at yes. various paces, yeah. which is hugely important. And then how you mix and match. So if you want some work done at tempo work and within the same workout, some work at, done at, at 1500 pace or 800 pace or 10K pace, there's a system in place where you can figure that out and it, you get people an appropriate volume of work to do yep. and they can do it and finish it, but it's still enough of a stimulus that they improve over time. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty, I love, I love this stuff, yeah. but you know, it's not. And there's a fine line because, you know, you never want to go over that line, yeah. but also you're right. You want to have that. You don't want it to be so easy that you're not getting the stimulus. No, and what you don't, you know, ideally, if you're coaching, you don't, you, you want to make it so that athletes can attain the workout when they can't finish a workout. It's really screws with their head mm -hmm. really badly. Oh, you yeah. know, you lose your confidence. Like I can't finish this workout. What's wrong with me? Yeah. yeah you don't want that. Yeah. You want success. Even if it's a little bit less. Right. You want someone walking away, say, I can do another one. Yes. You know, that's the, in, in an ideal situation. Yeah. Unless you're doing three quarters as hard as you can do them. And then you want anybody, you want people barfing on the track, that sort of thing. So yeah. um, what do we have now? We have um, Eric's Closet. Well, yeah, Eric's Closet, which has really transitioned over the episodes. And uh, now it's Kevin. Now it's Kevin's yeah. Closet. Yeah. Well, Kevin Searles, I mentioned this previously, is the president of the Hoka Aggies mm -hmm. running club. And he was a very good runner in the uh, 80s. Yeah. And he has shoes in this bag. Do you want to grab the bag? I think we should grab the bag because okay. we've got 
in all our kind, all kinds of cool yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. All right, Joe. What we have here is a very special spike, the yes. Nike America's track spike. So this was one of the first shoes, uh, track spikes that came out in 1973 from Nike. Um, you know this spike because you saw it on the feet of Steve Prefontaine. Um, a lot of history with the shoe. We went to World HQ before. One of the five shoes that's enshrined in the Prefontaine Hall. Um, a lot of cool things with this shoe. I mean, obviously in the early 70s, this was pretty revolutionary. It's got the nylon suede upper that has craftsmanship Japan made. Um, the other thing that's cool is the outsole actually extends up into the upper. I believe this was the first Nike track spike to do that. Maybe one of the first track spikes in general. And then you've got the four pin layout. Still got one little spike hanging out in there from uh, Kevin never oh, took know. out. Yeah. The, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, so the woolly mammoth left it in there. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you can tell this is game worn and uh, these are valuable spikes. <laughs> the, yeah. The other thing you'll notice on the spike or you won't notice is it doesn't have a heel, added heel protection. Nothing. And back in the 70s, the mid 70s, uh, actually a a guy I go to his house for Thanksgiving, Mark Schilling, who won the state meet, California High School state meet in the mile, had the record for 30 or 40 years before Mike Stember tied it. But he suggested to Coach Riggs, who was at San Jose State um, and really big with Puma, mm -hmm. that they should put padding on the heel of the spike. So okay. that was Mark Schilling's idea. Gotcha. Now, maybe he's just making that up, but that's what I got from him. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, and he, yeah, he was, I have more stories from old running guys. Like, uh, what I went to a party last weekend, my buddy's 60th birthday party and, um, Mac fleet was there. My buddy coached Mac in high school. Mm. So Mac was there and Mac's dad, Dale, yep. Dale, the whale, oh, uh, yeah. won the state meet in 71 in the two mile, maybe one in the 72. But anyways, he was telling me he went to, uh, he went to Washington state and ran with Henry Rono and, and John Nano. John Nano had the world record in the 10,000. Henry Rono was Henry Rono. But he said every day at practice, the top four guys, one would run north, one would run south, one would run east, and one would run west. But um, I was talking to, uh, talking to Dale about uh, Jerry Lindgren because mm -hmm. Lindgren went to Washington. Another legend. Another legend. And, and what happened was Lindgren convinced, because he convinced everyone because he was running 210 miles a week, he convinced Dale to run 173 miles a week for three weeks. And he said, I could only do it for three weeks. And Dale's big. Dale's a big guy. Yeah. When and you'd see him next to his competitors, he would just point, look straight down, down on him. But 173 miles a week, and the guy had to be 200 pounds. Yeah. And he said it killed his track season. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I could, 173 miles will kill most people's uh, exactly. track season. And this other guy that's in town, Bill Scobie, called mm -hmm. Mad Dog, he ran 220 miles a week for i want to say five or six weeks but he was rooming with lindgren and lindgren convinced him to do this and he said he did monday through saturday he did uh six miles in the morning did intervals at lunch did 10 miles in the evening monday through saturday and then 18 20 18 to 20 hard on sunday yeah and he did that for six weeks and then uh he ran pretty well he ran the california record in the, in the marathon but he averaged 150 miles a week for 15 years these old timers yeah and shoes that look like yeah that. i mean look this shoe's got outsole it's got a thin spenco insole yeah and that's all that i mean 
what a difference from the marathon shoes that we have today. Yeah, basically, I, mean, I, I know. And speaking of that, should so, we dive into it? Yeah, I think so. The, the, we we were um, made aware of something. You know, people in listener land probably think we know everything about everything, and we actually don't know everything about everything because Connor um, has a pair of Hoka Cielo X ones, which is the marathon racing shoe that Hoka is going to have their athletes wear at the Olympic trials. So I, you can tell the story, but you were looking at it, it looked like it's a little pretty high in the stack, right? Yeah. So, I mean, we, if you don't know at running warehouse, we measure everything by hand. We've got our fancy, very high tech yeah. uh, measuring device. It's like in and out burger with fries, you know, we do them by yeah. hand. Yeah. And I mean, as, as non-technical as this device is, it works very well. We, um, we lift it up. You can measure right into the heel of a shoe. And for the most part, it's accurate. It uh, is consistent. That's an issue with a lot of stack height measurements with brands is every brand measures their stack height different. Some people include the insole. Some people don't include the outsole. Some people measure at different areas. So that's one cool thing about if you're on the Running Warehouse site, you know that the stack heights are all going to be measured consistently. Right. And where is that? And that's going to be... so. How we measure is we go to about the center of the heel. Um, we'll measure a couple different points around the center of the heel and average it out. But for the most part, you're going to get a pretty standard number. So if you take a shoe like the Primex, this is going to be what is known as the illegal stacked shoe, well over 40 millimeters. And as we measure, just a very, uh, a very basic, you're going to get it around 49 mils. Now, we take a shoe like the SC Elite. So this is going to be your standard super trainer or super uh, super shoe. Uh, a lot of shoes that we've been measuring over the years, Vaporfly, Alphafly, uh, SC Elite, are going to be around that 40 millimeter. Because in the that's heel. the World Athletics uh, Correct. What limit. Yes. So there is some variability because um, you have different sizes and... Um, but for the most part, when we measure the heel of super shoes, they're going to come out around 40 millimeters. So if I measure the the SC Elite, I'm getting it at about 39 mils, okay. right in line with what we'd expect. Right. For the most part, most shoes that we measure are going to be in the 38 to 41, 42. Sometimes they're just a little bit over. But we got the CLOX. And remember, this is the marathon racing shoe for the Olympic trials. Yes. So it needs to be World Athletics compliant. Yes. So I measured the Cielo X right now, and I'm getting it about 46 in the heel. And we've measured a couple different points. And if you go even further back, you can some you can get it down a little bit, but it's still over that 40 mil limit. So we had to do some digging. And what we found out, and I don't know how many people knew, we didn't know this, is actually the world athletics uh, standard is you measure whatever the length of the insole of the shoe is, you measure 12% back from the, the back of the shoe. So if you have a 39 centimeter shoe, I did the math this morning, it comes out to 1.75 inches, 1.8 inches, which is farther back of the shoe than what we measure. So you could theoretically have a beveled heel and have a, a legal measurement where, where World Athletics is taking it to 12% and actually have a higher stack, which is what we have here. So, yeah, I mean, and I think we're probably going to have to get someone on the podcast at some point who 
is in the weeds of world athletics regulations. Yeah. Um, to me, it seems like a huge loophole if you can have a really thin uh, bevel, bevel here in the heel, and then you throw, I mean, it seems like theoretically you could put as much stack as you want throughout the shoe and just have an aggressive bevel. So I don't know. Are yeah. rules going to change? I don't know. Maybe, people... maybe we're going to get in trouble for mentioning this. I don't know. But the other thing too is because uh, racing shoes tend to be more forward facing that's probably not the word but it it, it it it's a bias towards forefoot running right and so you can mess around with the the heel bevel and not have it affect athletes as negatively i mean like the rebellion's got some crazy geometries and some of the stuff puma's doing and it might have something to do with with this measurement thing yeah i don't know maybe we're letting the cat out of the bag i don't yeah. know what's going on with that yeah i mean i've i'm i'm going to be even more aware now because i've started to see this new rebellion pro 2 that came out and it seems to be in a very similar ballpark here so um i think there's going to be one of two options either uh this is a loophole and more more companies are going to utilize this or the rules are going to change again and that's this weird spot we're in right now with the sport where rules are constantly changing and people are trying to keep up with what the latest kind of loophole is and the other part of it is i mean you're really talking about shoes that maybe a couple dozen people, it matters. Yes. You know, the rest of the world doesn't really care if it's a 50 or 60 mil stack. Right. Because you're not going to get, what, you're going to get disqualified from the Boston Marathon for wearing a 55 mil stack shoe? Yeah. No. And, I, you know, it, it's a complicated subject because obviously you don't want technology to be so much of a factor that it's it's the only reason records are going down. Like we saw this in swimming with... With the lasers, uh, the speedo, the laser suits, suit, yeah. And um, I know people were worried about this um, during the last Olympics. With there was supposedly a Nike sprint spike that was going to maybe take down every record. I know when we talked with uh, New Balance's team, they also had something up their sleeves in the sprint world. So, you know, every year that goes by, things are going to change. We've already seen World Athletics regulations go from twenty-five mil in the heel for track. Now it's down to twenty. Um, so it's going to be a constant battle and brands are going to have to, um, adapt. Yeah. And it, it, they have to do it quickly too, <laughs> which is scary yeah, because a lot, a lot of them can't react quickly. Yeah. Um, but you know, you have to do it for the athletes. Yes. So yeah. I have a bit of a soapbox, uh, <laughs> <this is probably laughs> the last subject for the day, but I was at the recent, uh, club cross country nationals okay. in Tallahassee. And something that's never made any sense to me at all is the length of these various races for different age groups. So uh, NCAA Division I cross-country championships. Why in the hell are women running four miles and men running 10K? I don't know. we're, We're way past the days of women being the weaker sex. They're tougher than we are. They're just nicer about it before they kick your ass. So, but... You know, I, I just go through this whole thing and I go, look at all these races for different age groups. The the top finishers should finish about the same time. Right. Right. And it's, it's going to be hard to do that. But so here's the different things. Hear me out uh, at Club Cross Country. Open women. Mm-hmm. These are women that are under 40 years old. Most of them are in their late 20s. They're running 6K, mm-hmm. four miles. Takes about 20 minutes for top runners. Open men, 10K, about 31 min- minutes. Masters women. This is 40 to 7-year-old, 6K, 4 miles. Masters men, 40 to 59 years old, 10K. And then Masters men, 
60 and 70, 8K. So does it make any sense whatsoever that a 70-year-old man is running farther than a 26-year-old woman? Who is an elite athlete. An elite athlete looking to make the world team or looking to make the Olympic team. No. I mean, there's a huge difference between, okay, the winning time in the Masters men's 8K was 35 minutes and the open women's was 20 minutes. A 20-minute race is a hell of a lot different than a 35-minute race. And the other thing, too, it's a club championship. How many 70-year-old guys are going to want to race 8K? I'm 60, and there's no way in hell I want to run that. So here's my proposal. Men and women run the same distance. Open men and women is 10K. Masters 40 to 59 is 8K. And 16 over 6K for both genders. I mean, that seems reasonable. To me, at least if it was me and it was 6K, I consider it. If I had a hamstring. Well, I mean, you know, though, I mean, this is a very specific case with cross country with USATF, but... There's, it's just things are always more complicated when you with USATF than they need to be. Yeah, for sure. Across the board. Yeah. So, you know, there's always room for change. Will there be change? Hard no. to know. And, you know, I finally figured out why the uh, Olympic marathon trials are in Orlando on the weekend of February 3rd. Enlighten me. You know what happens in Orlando on February 4th? What? Uh, the Pro Bowl. The NFL Pro Bowl. So I'm thinking there's people in the national office for USATF that said... Hey, the Pro Bowl's going on. Let's go to Orlando instead, and then we could go after the meet and go to the Pro Bowl. So that's what I think is going on there. Yeah. But anyways, I'm- well running aficionados, uh, that's a wrap for this week. <laughs> and as I keep forgetting to say, but I'm going to remind you, like, comment, subscribe, and ask us questions. Yeah. Because there are people asking us questions. And, and you know, if you want us to do um, uh, shoe reviews... Let us know. We're happy to give opinions and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, every week we, we're going to keep adapting. We're going to keep bringing the fun. I, I think the shoe reviews is something that could add its own flair. But yeah, I mean, we're very active uh, responding to the comments. Joe even uh, <laughs> has been checking in and giving some nice training reviews. So Exactly. Yeah. I mean, a lot more to come. Um, I think we got a few more guests in line. We that- do are going to be some big ones. I think just even with your uh, your country club friends, we might have to get them out here soon too. <laughs> well, our oxygen-deprived friends, till next time, thanks, Connor. Peace out. <laughs>